Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, or Jehovah Witnesses, they wouldn't be Christian. It's kind of similar, as we say, with regards to Orthodoxy and Catholicism. There's Christians in those, but uh, if they hold to the doctrines strongly that characterize those movements, the more they t uh, intelligently and dogmatically hold to those doctrines, the more unlikely they are Christian, or the more unchristian they become, however you want to put it. So are there Christians, true Christians, in the Seventh-day Adventist movement? Of course, I, I, I'm sure there are. I think there's probably my own personal opinion more in this cult than the other two, Mormonism and, and Jehovah Witness. But uh, don't, don't be misled, brethren. We're going to see that Seventh-day Adventists are nearly as bad. In fact, I would just basically say they're all bad, all three of them. Furthermore, it is true that many contemporary um, Seventh-day Adventists want to distance themselves from their heritage uh, and, and redefine things and, and somewhat tweak their history. Um, and, and so on one level, that's good, that they're trying to get away from some of the heretical doctrine of their fathers, or mothers in this case. But then again, I think a lot of them still don't really understand the truth. Because what happened, in, in, and we'll see this today, in all three movements, but now we're thinking of Adventism in particular, they use the same terms we use that's found in the Bible, faith, grace, justification, hell, but they redefine them. So they talk about justification, very rarely. They talk about sanctification, they talk about faith, they talk about the Bible, but they've redefined those terms. They have a similar vocab, but a very different dictionary. And that's true of all three of these. But now I just want to kind of focus on the first uh, and so I want to just quickly give you uh, four marks of a religious cult. And we're going to see today that, unfortunately, Adventism is characterized by all four. First, it's new. All of these three originated somewhere in the 19th century. And, they, and they're not ashamed of that. They're not ashamed to say, yeah, we started here. And prior to that, the church was apostate. That brings me to my second point. A religious cult believes that they are the true church and everybody else isn't. Now, to be fair, Adventism, uh, Adventism uh, did believe and does believe that they're the true remnant. But uh, their founding father or mother, Ellen G. White, that we'll come to today, she did believe that there were true Christians outside Adventism. So I have to give her that credit. But she did believe that if they get told the truth that Saturday Sabbath is a must to keep and they reject it, then they're not Christian. But until they're told that, she, she did give them the benefit of the doubt, which I have to be at least um, honest on that. So they're, they're novel. It's, a, it's new. They claim to be the true church and everybody else falls. By the way, historically, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness believe that everybody who did not belong to those cults were not Christian. 
And again, if you listen to a Mormon today or a Jehovah Witness day or a Seventh-day Adventist today, oh, we're just like you, but just a different denomination. Well, that's not what your father said. The, the, the originators of your cult all believed without fail that everybody else wasn't Christian if they didn't belong to your cult. With, with some exception, again, with uh, Ellen G. White. So it's novel or new. It's the church. Thirdly, it has a dominant figure considered its authority who usually has special revelation and new or new revelation. Um, just think of all these three cults. Adventism, Ellen J. White or G. White. She got fresh revelation from God. She was and remains to be the dominant authority in that cult. And she got all of her information from visions from God. Joseph Smith, Mormonism. Charles Russell, of course, Jehovah Witness. All of these three people got visions from God that was special revelation that distinguished their movement from the rest. Brother, let me put it like this. If your religious group just started, it's probably a problem. If it isolates itself from everybody else and thinks they're the only one, it may be a problem. And if they have one dominant figure who gets special revelation from God, it's definitely a problem. Fourthly, it espouses serious error. And the error it espouses is typically old error repackaged. We'll see when we get to Jehovah Witness, Mormons too, and even actually even Seventh-day Adventists. They were all Arians. Arians is uh, a movement that goes back to the fourth century, remember, where they believed Arius denied the full divinity of Jesus Christ. This is going to find its grossest expression in, 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 uh, in the Jehovah Witness. Uh, brethren, the Jehovah Witness are nothing more than Arianism revived. And we're going to see that the three or so major originators of the Seventh-day Adventists were Arians. And we're going to see that William, or that uh, Ellen G. White was heretical on a number of levels. She got her visions from God, but the God from whom she got visions was ignorant of the truth. That may be a problem. When the gods that she gets visions from contradicts the Bible, there may be a problem. So when, I, I, I don't know that all four of these are always true, but I think, generally speaking, these are four marks of all religious cults. There are definitely uh, four marks of these three that we're going to consider. Let me just start by saying this very plainly. Seventh-day Adventists Adventism is a religious cult. All right? And I want to show you that today. Now, we're going to look at two things. First, their origin and then major beliefs. All right? Let's go quickly to the origin and then we'll spend the bulk of our time on beliefs. Okay, before we go further, let me say this. If you don't, uh, be careful, but because I don't want you to read heretical writing. But you can go to writings of lngwhite.org 
and all of her books are there to read for free. That's a Seventh-day Adventist uh, website. So they're, they're actually putting it there obviously positively because they're proud of her, their prophetess. But it's really nice. You can Google it, or not Google it, but search it for themes, and it has all the books she wrote. She wrote hundreds and hundreds of books, probably 250 books. But the thing is, is that the majority of them are just repackaging of other books. Um, and then many of them are on diet. You know that she was uh, big on diet. So probably 30 of those are books on why not to eat bacon. But the rest are all damnable heresies. And they're all visions. I mean, the majority of them are visions. Uh, the majority of her writings start with the phrase, as we'll see today, and I was taken away in vision, and God told me this. Now their origin, more quickly. Central to North America. You know what? Now that I put the table there, I, I didn't realize that. I knew there was a reason. I knew there was a rhyme behind my reason. There we go. Central to North America, American Adventist beginnings was a Baptist layman by the name of William Miller. From 1816 to 1818, Miller studied his Bible intensively and came to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time, all the affairs of our present state would be wound up and Christ would come. Miller had reached this conclusion through a study of the prophecies of the book of Daniel, especially Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, let me just pause for a second. Don't build a religion. This is what he did. He built a religion based upon one or two obscure prophecies. Whatever Daniel uh, 8, 14 means, and we can argue over it, it definitely doesn't mean what he thought it did. And he built everything upon a very weak foundation. Let the less clear text be interpreted by the more clear text. That's just a basic hermeneutical principle. Keep that in mind. Operating on the commonly accepted understanding that a day in prophecy equals a year, Miller calculated that the 2300-day prophecy would conclude in 1843, and interpreting the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 as the earth and its cleansing as the last day purging of the earth by fire, Miller reasoned that Christ would return to the earth at the end of the 2300 days, about 1843. Another quick caveat. If the religious leader or any preacher ever believes he knows the exact day of Jesus coming, you probably want to leave the church. Miller's first influential convert was Joshua Himes, uh, Himes sorry, who started the first two Adventist magazines, Signs of the Times and Midnight Cry. In addition to these, Himes started various local magazines, Trumpet of Alarm in Philadelphia, Second Advent of Christ in Cleveland, and Western Midnight Cry in Cincinnati. Miller gained many followers who took his theories as little predictions, and eventually October 22, 1844, was set. Obviously, however, the literal second coming of Christ did not happen by October 22, 1844. Miller's followers, then called Millerites, were devastated. That day became known as the Great Disappointment. By the way, the guy I'm quoting from, George Knight, is one of the foremost Adventist historians. He himself is a Seventh-day Adventist. So it's not like he has an axe to grind. 
I get a few information from their website. You see it. I quote him, but it, as we'll go forward, we're going to see that largely we should stick with Ellen White herself. On October 22, tens of thousands of believers lingered in expectation of the appearance of Jesus in the clouds, while countless others waited in doubt, fearing that the Millerites might be correct. But the day came and went, thus encouraging the scoffers and fearful, but leaving the Millerites in total disarray and discouragement. Their specific claims about the time and their unbounded confidence in the October 22 date served to heighten the disappointment. Despite those reassuring words, the bulk of the Millerites probably gave up their second Advent faith. Meanwhile, those who continued to hope for the soon coming of Christ saw their one once harmonious movement dissolve into chaos and different leaders and self-appointed leaders put forth conflicting claims and counterclaims regarding the meaning of their experience and the truth about the second advent. Out of that seething cauldron and shapeless mass of discouragement. Now keep in mind, brethren, this is from an Adventist man, an historian. Out of that discouragement confusion would come the seventh day Adventist church. So out of the rubble of that, out of the confusion of that, <clears throat> out of the chaos of that, they come to the conclusion that October 2244 is a date. It comes and goes. Everybody's in disarray. A lot of people say forget it and go back to their churches, but there's a core that stay and that core becomes the Seventh-day Adventist. And we're going to see that three names largely arise. Three personalities arise. Notice. In the aftermath of the great disappointment, three leaders emerged who sought to summarize a body of truth promoted through conferences. So magazines and conferences, these are the two predominant ways that they started, and, and through their magazines today, they did the same, as do the Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witness. The first of the Sabbatarian conferences convene, uh, convened in the spring of 1848 in Rocky Hill, Connecticut. At least five more met that year, another six in 49 and 10 in 50. So you can see how the frequency of them is, is multiplying. Through these conferences, Bates, James White, don't get me confused with the modern James White. This is the gentleman that's going to marry Ellen G., who then would become Ellen G. White, and Ellen G. White took prominent positions. Eventually, Ellen G. White took a dominant position among the leaders through her visions and subsequent dreams or writings. That is the writing down of those visions. <clears throat> While various biblical concepts were still being studied, those leading this movement were guided by a young woman, Ellen G. White. Her profound insight from God on these rediscovered truths astounded Bible scholars and clergy alike. White was recognized as a modern-day recipient of the spiritual gift of prophecy. Although the name Seventh-day Adventist for the denomination was not officially assumed until 1860 at a conference held in Battle Creek, Michigan, nevertheless, Seventh-day Adventism had been launched in 1855. Adventist headquarters uh, were established in Battle Creek and remained there until 1905 when they were transferred to Takama Park, a Maryland suburb of Washington, D.C. By the end of the 70s, Adventist membership had tripled, passing 16,000. By 1901, there were 75,000 members worldwide, and the church had also established colleges, schools, secondary schools, hospitals, publishing houses. If you check the uh, website uh, I did this morning, uh, the seventhdayadventist.org website, 
they now boast over 22 million worldwide members and 100,000 congregations. 23, over 20, just over 22 million. Brother, it just shows you, quite frankly, how foolish we are to believe stuff like this. And, I, and it's, it kind of dovetails a little bit with what we're going to talk about in the morning sermon, because we're going to come in the morning sermon to Paul's clash with a demon-possessed slave girl. And we're going to see that demonic activity was real and is real. And I think a lot of these cults, quite frankly, are the product of demonic lies. <clears throat> well, I know it. I don't think it. And it's unfortunate. Does anybody here, by the way, have any direct knowledge or, contact, I guess, contact with Adventism? Ad Adventism? Bill, brother, <clears throat> three, four, five of you. They're, they, I, the only direct exposure I had with them when I was the chaplain back at the mission and the local Seventh-day Adventist church minister wanted to preach at the mission. He wanted to get on the rotation. I said, but you're not a Christian organization. He says, yeah, we are. And quite frankly, the, the other, the, the hierarchy of the mission believed it. I was so offended. I was ready to, ooh. And so I gave them a, a document that underscored their heresies. And eventually, thankfully, I had my way and we didn't let them come. They let me write a, rewrite a doctoral statement that kept them out. Because they don't believe, the, the, the one thing I focused on was they don't believe in eternal punishing. They believe in eternal punishment, which is two different things, according to them. They believe in what we call annihilation. Every, all the wicked just are, are, are um, destroyed and they have no existence beyond. And by the way, they believe in soul sleep which means for Christians and non-Christians, when you die, you go to the ground and there's no consciousness past it. For the righteous, they're resurrected, body and soul, at the rapture. They were dispensational, go figure. Sorry. They were, uh, you're secretly raptured. There's a, really some unique things they believe with reference to that system. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, the wicked are resurrected too, at the end of the thousand years, but they're resurrected body and soul only to be destroyed and to not have any consciousness beyond. It's really a bizarre, it's quite bizarre, quite frankly. It's, it's even more bizarre than traditional dispensationalism. All right, their basic beliefs. By early 1848, the Sabbatarian Adventist leaders through extensive and intensive Bible study, guys, I, I, I didn't, I, I was tempted not even to put that in there. I should have, I wanted to like put quote marks around it. Had come to basic agreement on uh, 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 at least five points of doctrine. The personal, visible, pre-male return of Jesus. The cleansing of the sanctuary with Christ's ministry in the second apartment having begun on October 22, 1844. The beginning of the anti-typical day of atonement. We'll come to all these in a minute. The validity of the gift of prophecy with progressively more of the believers seeing Ellen White's ministry as a modern manifestation of that gift. Four, the obligation to observe the seven-day Sabbath and the role of the Sabbath in the great end-time conflict prophesied in Revelation 11 to 14. And fifthly, that immortality is not an inherent human quality, but something people receive only through faith in Christ. That just means they believed in annihilation. 
as I've already said, annihilation. These doctrinal positions were eventually summarized in 1872 as a declaration of fundamental principles, by the way. They were so anti-credo, which all heretics are. And yet they were so anti-credo, they wrote their own. That might be a sign. Why do you have to write your own? Why not use the old ones? Because they didn't believe the old ones. They had new doctrines that need to be systematized. And you can read it, you can Google it and find it in the 1872 Statement of Faith. Michael? So what's the uh, explanation of the cleansing the sanctuary of the sacrifice on the... We're coming to that in one of the points. Yeah, That's like the core of their, their belief. Central to... <clears throat> it was the way in which they saved face over the false prediction of October 22. They, they said, oh, wait a minute. Well, we'll get to that, but let me just summarize it this way. They said, well, we, the Millerites, Brother Miller thought that Jesus was coming October 22, 1844, to cleanse the sanctuary, the earth. But he had the date right, but the location wrong. Jesus in heaven entered into the Holy of Holies from the first apartment into the second. And now he's cleansing, making atonement for the sins of believers beginning with October 2244. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, that's major for them. As the first comprehensive Seventh-day Adventist statement of faith, it codified what may be called the Adventist census fidelium of the period. Theology always implies the art of summarizing and carving out formulations. Thus, 1872 statement is a prime example of early Adventist theology. He was an Adventist, the gentleman I quote from. The Declaration contains 25 articles with over half addressing eschatology. In 57, 1957, the Adventists published Questions on Doctrine, wherein all the major doctrines of the Declaration are confirmed, and yet a more evangelical position <coughs> on the Trinity and deity of Christ are maintained. Prior to this, early Adventists were either unclear <coughs> excuse me, on these truths or expressly denied them. We'll, we'll see that we see that the early ones denied them, or, or were unclear. Combination. All right, so I put it into five points, and the first is the writings of Ellen G. White. Notice, as White claimed to receive direct revelation from God, her teachings were viewed as divinely given, inspired, and authoritative. To use her words. When early Adventist leaders came to the point in their study where, where they said, we can do nothing more, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me. This is her. I would be taken off in vision, and a clear explanation of the passage we had been studying would be given me, with instruction as to how we were to labor and teach effectively. Thus, light was given that helped us to understand the Scriptures in regard to Christ, His mission, and priesthood, a line of truth extending from that time to the time when we shall enter the city of God, that's at the rapture, was made plain to me, and I gave to others the instruction that the Lord had given me. So when we're trying to understand a text, and it just keeps saying the same things that Christians used to believe, Ellen G. White then got a vision. No, they were wrong. God now has given me the true interpretation of the text, and thus she communicated to them, and they believed it. That's not an overstatement. <clears throat> Elsewhere, she said, the brethren knew that when not in a vision, I could not understand these matters. 
and they accepted as light, direct from heaven, the revelations given. And they accepted as light, direct from heaven, the revelations given. Again, in her early writings, she confessed, her early writings is just a collection of three of her earlier writings. Thus, the doctrinal foundation of the Seventh-day Church was laid in the faithful study of the Word of God, and when the pioneers could not make headway, I was given light that helped to explain their difficulty and open the way for the study to continue. The visions also placed the stamp of God's approval upon correct conclusions. Thus, the prophetic gift acted as a corrector of error and confirmer of truth. Well, the church for the last 1,800 years has always believed this text means this. No, God told me in a vision it doesn't. It means instead this. Oh, well, then they believed it. As late as 2015, the Adventists affirm their confidence in writings of white. We affirm our conviction that her writings are divinely inspired, truly Christ-centered, and Bible-based. Rather than replacing the Bible, they uplift the normative character of Scripture and correct inaccurate interpretations of it derived from tradition, human reason, personal experience, and modern culture. Adventists believe that the closing of the Scripture canon did not terminate heaven's communication with man through the gifts of the Spirit, but rather that Christ, by the ministry of his Spirit, guides his people, edifying the strength of them, and especially so in these last challenging days of human history. This is taken from question, questions on doctrine, question 9. And it is the Holy Spirit who divides to every man severely as he will, severally as he will, he calls one to be an apostle, one an evangelist, another pastor, teacher, and to another he gives a gift of prophecy. Seventh-day Adventists believe that this gift was manifested in the life and ministry of Ellen G. White. So in the 50s, when this was written, they really tried to make themselves appear more orthodox. And they altered and they made like their, their, the treatment of the Trinity and the deity of Christ seem more orthodox. Brother. But it's really not because they just... Word it in a way that just anybody who's discerning will know they're leaving room for Arianism. But if you were not discerning and you read it, it sounds good on the, on the surface, but it's not. And that's the problem. Sometimes you just, you wonder which is worse. Religious, Christian cults, or just other world religions? Because we know the other world religions are demonic and false. The problem is that so many Christians get duped in believing this. 22 plus million supposed believers of Ellen G. White's prophecies. Because that's what it comes down to. Brother Joe? 2 Corinthians 11, 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transporting themselves to the apostles of Christ. And no wonder they're saved themselves. Yep. Now, the great controversy is the backbone to their whole system. And it's one book written by her that basically covers everything. Ellen G. White and most early Adventists believed in various forms of Arianism. 
the view that denies the Father and Son share the same nature and are thus eternally one in power and glory. In her book, The Great Controversy, she described the Father as supreme, the Son beneath him, and Lucifer beneath the Son. She said, Satan in heaven, before his rebellion, was a high and exalted angel next in honor to God's dear Son. A special light beamed in his countenance and shone around him brighter and more beautiful than around the other angels. Yet Jesus, God's dear Son, had the preeminence over the angelic host. According to White, the Father chose to exalt the Son to a place of equality with himself. So the Son didn't have eternal equality. He was given equality at a point in time prior to creation. The Father then made known that it was ordained by himself that Christ, his Son, should be equal with himself, so that wherever it was the presence of the Son, it was as his own presence. His son would carry out his will and his purpose, but would do nothing of himself alone. The father's will would be fulfilled in him. She further said the exaltation of the son of God as equal with the father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also titled to reverence and honor. And thus it was this elevation of the son to equality of the father that resulted in Lucifer's rebellion. So if somebody says, uh, she says here that the son is equal in power and glory with the father. Isn't that orthodox? No, it's not. Because the orthodox teach that he was always eternally so. He didn't become that in time. Also, we believe that time doesn't come into creation. But that's a side point. Furthermore, we're going to say nothing today just because... Um, we just didn't have the time, but if I was to redo the lesson, I probably would put a, at least a paragraph of this in it because it's so big. They believe that on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, remember there was two goats chosen, and then the casting of lots to determine one of the goats is to be killed, and the other is to have hands laid on them and then pushed or shoot off into the uh, wilderness as the scapegoat. They believe the first was Jesus and the second was Satan. They actually believe, and it's a big doctrine to them, and they all maintain it even today, that the scapegoat was Satan, and thus Satan does in some sense bear away the sin of the people because he's punished for their sins because he had a hand in them. But he's only punished temp temporarily because he too is, is destroyed annihilated so atonement doesn't finish until after satan's destroyed because the sins are still there brother that's not good it's not good bob i'm saying her explaining this sort of makes it sound like uh, lucifer was a victim she sympathizes with him sort of like the throwing stones at See a lot of, uh, justification for Lucifer, Lucifer really becomes on a practical level equal to Jesus. And in some cases, he gets as much adoration as the other. They're, it's just a devilish system, for sure. Yeah, any system that puts Satan in that light, it might be proper to question. The angel, she goes on to say, joyfully acknowledged the supremacy of Christ. And prostrating themselves before him, poured out their love and adoration. This is when he was elevated to equality to the Father. 
Lucifer bowed with them, but in his heart there was a strange, fierce conflict. Truth, justice, and loyalty were struggling against envy and jealousy. His desire for suprem uh, supremacy grew strong, and envy of Christ was indulged. The high honors conferred on Lucifer were not appreciated as God's special gift, and therefore called forth no gratitude to his creator. He gloried in his brightness and exalted and expired to be equal with God. He was beloved and reverenced by the heavenly host. Angels delighted to execute his commands, and he was clothed with wisdom and glory above them all. Yet the Son of God was exalted above him as one in power and authority with the Father. He shared the Father's counsels, while Lucifer did not thus enter into the purposes of God. She goes on to speak about how when the Father and the Son would, would, um, would speak together, he would not be allowed in the room. Why, questioned this mighty angel, should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he honored above me? And so he became discontent. He began to go to the other angels, and he got the conscience of a third of them who fell with him in the mutiny and became demons. So there's truth always in error, right? I mean, much of what she's saying, or some of what she's saying is truthful. Now, the seventh-day Sabbath, Adventists believe Saturday remains the Christian Sabbath, they further believe that those who refuse to keep it will receive the mark of the beast, and those who persevere in their refusal will be eternally destroyed. It's really the, a corner piece to their whole system. Furthermore, guys, they believe, believe that there's a literal temple in heaven, like the one on earth. And there's literally the tables in heaven, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, prior to coming to earth. They're, they're really, they, they, they've really reinvented everything into the image of man. It's really an attempt to bring God down to man's level. Okay, so they believe that Rome, the Pope, switched the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And thus to worship on Sunday is to worship the Pope and receive the mark of the beast. Kind of giving you a little bit of a heads up. The Pope has changed the day of rest from the Sabbath to the first day. He has thought to change the very commandment that was given to cause man to remember his creator. He has thought to change the greatest commandment in the Decalogue and thus make himself equal with God or even exalt himself above God. Uh, by the way, the two tablets that are in heaven before they came to earth, there was a special light illuminating the fourth. It's really all about that. On the first Sabbath in April 1847, seven months after we began to keep and teach the seven-day Sabbath, the Lord gave me a vision in which the importance of the Sabbath was stressed. I saw the tables of the law in the Ark of the Heavenly Sanctuary. She literally saw them because there's a literal sanctuary and the literal tablets in heaven. And a halo of light about the fourth commandment. In this revelation, I was carried down to the close of time and saw the Sabbath as the great testing truth on which men decide whether to serve God or an apostate power. Again, to worship on Sunday is to worship Rome because the Pope changed it. Thus, to worship on Sunday means you get the mark of the beast. According to Adventists, prior to Christ's return, the world will be divided between those who keep the Sabbath day Sabbath and those who do not. 
while the worshipers of God will be especially distinguished by their regard for the fourth commandment, this is her, the worshipers of the beast will be distinguished by their efforts to tear down the creator's memorial, i.e. the fourth commandment, to exalt the institution of Rome, worshiping on Sunday. It was on behalf of Sunday that Popery first asserted his arrogant claims, and his first resort to the power of the state was to compel the observance of Sunday as the Lord's Day. Brother, that is just absolutely so ridiculous. Any historian that has any common sense knows that the Pope didn't switch worship from Saturday to Sunday. Jesus did that. See, they're attributing things that should be attributed to Jesus to the Antichrist. It's not good. It's not a good look. It's definitely an evidence of their demonic roots. Uh, Tony? Well, that's a good question because when well, who was the first pope? Nobody agrees on that. It's absolutely... If it wasn't so serious, brother, it, would, it definitely is laughable. But people believe stuff like this. People are so stinkingly gullible. We all are by nature. Brother, bless God that he's made us to differ. Because we would have been worshiping Saturday somewhere in a Seventh-day Adventist church. There's a big one right off 62. Uh, or we were worshiping Friday in some mosque. Or not worshiping at all. Mike? What do you think it was about the 19th century that, because I know there were several other cultists that are not even going to talk about that. Christian science. Yeah. Really were starting. The Enlightenment, um, you know, all that uncertainty and the elevation of the reason of man. Certainly, I think Mike, in some ways, was was one ingredient to it. Uh, the fact that many, because of that, had become cold and, and and religion was so superficial. People coming out of it, and maybe right, obviously, right, and so, but they were coming out of it, and and. And, and, and falling prey to legalism. This is really what this is, a big legalistic system. If you do this, you do this, you do this, you are. If you don't, you aren't. And that's just basically. Everything surrounds the fourth commandment and, the, and you have to believe in these particulars. So they, as long as you believe in the, there's seven pillars of, um, of the Adventist theology. We're covering five. One of them, I, I got all seven in the five. As long as you hold those things, Mike, you are. And if you don't, then you're not. So it's just a legalistic religious cult. And I think it came out of the, the, the lukewarm context that the Enlightenment and other things had, had caused. Because, yeah, the 19th century was wonderful, right? I mean, we saw Spurgeon was, I mean, we're having revival. This is in 1844. Spurgeon is just a young man. He's not converted yet. But remember, he gets converted in the early 50s, starts pastoring in the mid 50s, and there's revival. I, I, I don't know, you know the way to call it, in England. And yet here in America, at the same time, there's a lot of declension, and there was declension in, in, in the British Isles too, but there's these cults originating. Unfortunately, brethren, America, with all of her good things, we've exported a lot of bad things. And these three, and dispensationalism, which I don't put as a cult, but it's still a bad system. Those four things, unfortunately, have their origination here. I think, too, 
study a lot of current movement, like critical science, and even word of faith, a prayer gospel. Uh, even secular verbs like uh, old Thomas and Baptist Thomas. If you trace their history, you go all the way back, it all goes to the metaphysical roots in the 1800s. They all kind of branch off. Yeah, and then there's a distrust of historical credo and confessional religion, which leaves them vulnerable. And then they all write their own confessions anyways. Uh, Brother David? And then having these conferences and perhaps putting a magazine in the hand. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's probably a couple of three or four, five or six, maybe seven kind of tap roots to it. Brother? That's definitely true. All right, so uh, where are we at? Page, uh, am I, uh, half of 398? Okay, there are now true Christians. In every, okay, this is her. Uh, this is, remember earlier I was saying I have to be honest and, 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 and admit she did believe there were true Christians outside of the Seventh-day Adventists, but watch how she puts it. There are now two Christians in every church not accepting the Roman Catholic communion who honestly believe that Sunday is a Sabbath of divine appointment. God accepts their sincerity of purpose and integrity before him. But when Sunday observance shall be enforced by law and the world shall be enlightened concerning the obligation of the true Sabbath, this is something that's going to happen. She never says when, but in the future, maybe it was in her day, I don't know, but when... when um, these events would take uh, would transpire. Then whoever shall transgress the commandment of God to obey a precept which has no higher authority than that of Rome would thereby honor popery above God. He is paying homage to Rome and to the power which enforces the institution ordained by Rome. He worships the beast and his image. As men then reject the institution which God has declared to be the sign of his authority and honor in his stead that which Rome has chosen as a token of her supremacy, that is, this uh, Sunday instead of Saturday worship, they will thereby accept the sign of allegiance to Rome, the mark of the beast. And it is not until the issue is thus plainly set before the people and they are brought to choose between the commandments of God, i.e. the fourth is Saturday, and the commandments of men, it's Sunday, that those who continue in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. So it's really not a small thing to them. 
I mean, we're Sabbatarian. We believe Sunday is a Christian Sabbath. Church has always believed that. But we don't say that those who don't see it like that aren't Christian. We Christians who worship on Sunday but don't believe it's the Sabbath, we don't disfellowship with them or throw them under the bus. We believe they're Christians who err, like we all do some, in some measure. But they made it so much a cornerstone to their whole system that if you... It really distinguishes you from the truth. That, 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 that's just how they put it, which uh, is clear from all of her emphasis in her theological system on Saturday Sabbath keeping. Now, we, uh, earlier we talked about the heavenly sanctuary. They had expected, this is Walter Martin, his Kingdom of Cults is a helpful book, but he was the main figure in the 50s and 60s in the mid 1900s to advocate that Adventism, Ad, Adventism wasn't a cult. And he actually didn't even put this in his book. He put it in an appendix where he argues that it's not a cult. But if you read it, brethren, it's tragic. It's unfortunate. And um, he took a lot of flack for that. And I think rightly so. But anyways, it's, it's still a helpful book. I'm going to quote from it when we get next week and the week after. And uh, even the section on, on uh, Adventism is still helpful. It's just that he concludes they're not a cult, which is wrong. He says, they had expected Christ to come to earth to cleanse the sanctuary, but the sanctuary was not the earth. It was in heaven. Instead of coming to earth, therefore, Christ had passed from one apartment of the sanctuary into the other apartment to perform a closing work now known as the investigative judgment. This is like the Holy of Holies in their system, of their system. The, the investigative judgment that starts, or it started, 20, uh, October 2244, and it ends with the rapture. Now remember, all the Christian dead are in the grave. So are the, the non-Christian dead. The righteous and the wicked dead are all in the grave. Body and soul, sleeping. So there's nobody in heaven but the Son of God. Now, for the first time, he's gone beyond the veil into the holy place, the most holy place. And now he's applying the blood to the cases of those found worthy. But he's investigating all of the professing Christians from the beginning to those who are living when he comes back. All of those. He's investigating whether or not they're worthy of his blood. And what he's doing is he assigns an angel for every person. And that angel was given the task of watching everything that person did their whole lives and marking it all down. And so Jesus, what he's doing right now, he started in October of 44, and he'll continue this until he into the rapture when he comes back. He's checking to see who's worthy to have his blood atone for their sins. Brother, I think this is kind of the, the big problem, isn't it? Like he's a big old Santa Claus. Maybe that's where they got it from. Checking the list, seeing who's not united, the whole thing. It's unbelievable. It really is. It's tragic. It's heretical. It's devilish. It's demonic. It's blasphemous. Josiah? Is that what happened over 
record Well, they they all they 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 die body and soul and and, and they uh, are underground. Um, and Jesus, up to that date, was doing what the Old Testament priesthood did in the first in the first apartment. He was doing that, which is who knows what. So, let's say Abel was a Christian when he died. He ceased to exist consciously. He's sleeping, body and soul underground. And that happened all the way up until, until 44. And it continues. The righteous dead are unconscious. When Jesus is finished checking the list, he comes back. That's the rapture. He resurrects everybody. Let me see. He resurrects the righteous. So now they're living body and soul and he takes them to the city of God in heaven. The wicked who were alive, we're not going to get to all this, so I'll just give you the overview. The, the wicked who are alive at the rapture when he comes back, the wicked alive, they just die and their bodies are, are left on the ground because there's nobody there to bury them. Because the righteous have been resurrected, body and soul, they're with him in the city of uh, God in heaven. And all the bodies of the wicked are on the ground, left on the ground for a thousand years. Satan and his demons reign over an uninhabited earth. Now, this is a, the, the u- most unique millennial view I've ever heard. For the millennial, the thousand years, Jesus and the, and the, and the believers are in heaven. And only Satan and the demons on earth for a thousand years. Now, at the end of the thousand years, that's the second advent. That's when Jesus comes back with his people. He resurrects all the wicked dead, body and soul, to destroy them everlastingly, along with Satan and the demons. He resurrects the earth. He purifies it with fire, the same fire that destroyed the wicked and and Satan and the devils. And he lives with his people on the new earth. For all eternity. That's kind of the eschatology of the uh, Adventists. Of uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. All right. Now, um, I do want to read a little bit of this. Um, Notice the paragraph that I have there. I was shown what did take place in heaven, top of 399, at the close of the prophetic periods in 1844. As Jesus ended his ministration in the holy place and closed the door of that apartment, a great darkness settled upon those who had heard and rejected the message of his coming, and they lost sight of him. As Jesus died on Calvary, he cried and his finished, and the veil of the temple was written twain from the top to bottom. This was to show that the services of the earthly sanctuary were forever finished, and that God would no more meet with the priests in their earthly temple to accept their sacrifices. The blood of Jesus was then shed which was to be offered by himself in the heavenly sanctuary. As the priest entered the most holy once a year to cleanse the earthly sanctuary in the Old Testament, so Jesus entered the most holy of the heavenly at the end of the 2300 days of Daniel 8 in 1844 to make a final atonement for all who would be benefited by his mediation and thus cleanse the sanctuary. Now we got a few minutes, but this last paragraph is important. 
in connection to the into entering the Holy of Holies on October 2344, uh, or in connection to entering that, began what Ellen G. White referred to as the investigative judgment, wherein Christ investigates every professing Christian to determine their destiny. In the day of final atonement and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. This is her. Every man's work passes in review before God and is registered as for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each man in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin with every artful dissembling. Remember, these are only professing believers. They, because they're so, so strongly Arminian, they actually believe that you can. these are real Christians who perish because you can be a Christian and then not be a Christian. Heaven sent warnings or reproves, neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities, the influence exerted for good or evil with its far-reaching results, all are chronicled by the recording angel. I go on to talk about how radical, uh, radically Arminian they are. They believe you can save the lost. So these are all saved people, but a good part of them have lost that salvation due to the fact that they sinned on earth and never repented from it. You have to repent from every sin. And any sin you don't repent from as a Christian, it gets marked in the book. Watch. It seems to us abundantly clear that the acceptance of Christ at conversion does not seal a person's destiny. His life record after conversion is also important. A man may go back to, uh, on his repentance or by careless inattention let slip the very life he's espoused. There must be an examination, she says, of the books of record to determine who, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, are entitled to the benefits of the atonement. The cleansing of the sanctuary, therefore, involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment. And then you have another fuller quotation of her as she basically just says much of what I just told you. All the books are open for, the, for from 44 up until the rapture, whenever that is. This is the time of the investigation of believers. That's what it is. Judging whether or not, determining whether or not believers are faithful enough to have the blood applied to their case. Brother, it's just works, righteousness, legalism, old ancient heresies, all the doctrines of devils. Now, you got the second coming. I've already given you basically the outline of that. So we're closed with just a few comments from Mike and then David. The the most they definitely talk about substitutionary atonement, but they put half of it on Jesus and the other half on Satan. I mean, there's just no way to get around that. Well, it's it's also very akin to uh, Islam. It, 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 actually, Seventh Day Adventist theology does have echoes of Islamic theology. Uh, Brother David. Brother Dan, in closing. Mm -hmm.
to say that um, there was an old friend of mine named Robert, who I knew from my time in Los Angeles, and we were in ministry together for a long time. And he's a good faith brother, and this friend of mine who married a woman who was uh, a Spanish woman who was a Seventh day Adventist. I don't know if he knew that woman, he knew it or what. If he did, then it shows that he wasn't that clear minded to begin with. In any case, he bought the whole system of book, line, and center. And in our relationship, I saw it regress toward his perspective of development. getting away from what we see as orthodox and into that, but how quickly he unraveled into a bitter, angry old man mm. once the cult got in mind. Mm. His entire trajectory as um, a brother in the Lord changed 100% towards him. Mm. So, in other words, the things that you know, he would have differences with, with let's say Presbyterians and whatever, how we say that's wrong or an error, but we're still brothers in the Lord in faith. Not, not with him. So the markings of a cult like then is that he he then levels condemnation against us, particularly on the Saturday Sabbath, like you said. That that's the main that's like the silver bullet for them. Um, and it's and it's just because Ellen B. White says so. She's the head of the authority. Um, they'll say the Roman Catholics changed with Constantine, blah, blah, blah. You say, prove it, show me. And they say, well, Ellen took a trip to, to Jesus, and Jesus told it to her. So he does, you know, but he'll, he'll condemn, he'll blaspheme, he'll say that myself and, and you as my pastor really deep down know that the poll is right, but we ourselves, um, we're not going to make any money. We're not going to um, have our have the audience that we have, whatever. Uh, if we if we um, give up on Christianity, but anyway, just to say that when when these cults get people locked, it just intoxicates them, and Satan infiltrates that. And this guy went from a sweet brother to a bitter, nasty old man who despised me and told me I was going to hell. Really so if somebody today who is a Seventh-day Adventist says, but we've changed our system, two things quickly. One, you probably haven't. You may have tweaked terms and words, but the majority of what you still espouse is in keeping with the traditional system. And secondly, because we're in church history and we're in the 19th century, as I did with dispensationalism, I intentionally left off debating with modern-day Seventh-day Adventists, and we just dealt with their root system. Their root system is devilish. So why would you want to try to revamp a devilish system to make it orthodox? Get out from it, repent from your sins, come to the Jesus of the Holy Scriptures, and find true forgiveness freedom, and acceptance. Amen. Our Father, we do bless you for this time and ask your blessing upon us as we now transition into our formal worship. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the truth. We pray that we would buy it and sell it not. We pray for so many people in this cult and others, blinded. And we know, Father, left to ourselves, we'd be just as blinded, if not more. So we, we ascribe our salvation in total to your kindness and grace, freely and fully found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.